Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk, and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And who knows, maybe our rebranding. Yeah, this whole walk thing. Hi. Um, So it's still a pandemic. We are still on Zoom, and we are still pastoring. So... (laughs) <laughs> we are excited to talk about it. So, um, Hinton, what is astonishing you this week? Let's see. Oh, okay. I'm so astonished. Monday, after years of debate and refusal to change, on Monday, the NFL team based in Washington, D.C., oh, yeah decided to change both its name and mascot, which many, if not most people, consider to be a racial slur against Native Americans. I am so happy that they have changed that. I, For the life of me, I never understood why they kept that name Uh, Let's see, Daniel Snyder bought the team in 1999, and his position was, quote, we'll never change the name. And then he said to a reporter, quote, it's that simple, never. You can use caps, (laughs) end quote, right? And so um, I've I've heard that since 1971, articles... um, in Washington newspapers were being written about the name of this team. And you would think that because of the Black Lives Matter movement, because of the murder of George Floyd, that maybe some great moral revelation came upon the powers that be in that organization. It wasn't that at all. Um, The change happened when Federal Express who owns the naming rights to their stadium, that pays $8 million a year for the naming rights, threatened uh, applied pressure. And when Nike took um, Washington Apparel off their website, well, then the organization got a revelation and decided to change the name. Now, I'm grateful that they did, but um, yeah, it was not out of the goodness of of their hearts. Well, I mean, just once again, we see what faith, what what institutions really have faith in uh, in America, and it is sports and commerce, right? And so, and once again, we see that some of the institutions that are leading with the most moral clarity right now are um, secular businesses and not the church and not the people who claim faith in Jesus Christ. And that is um, just, I think, a profound witness against believers that essentially, you know, we have very clear teaching about um, how we're supposed to use words and how we are not supposed to use our words to cause offense and enmity and um, 
you know, a whole teaching in James three about, you know, the damage that a tongue can do. And I think it's just amazing that, I mean, Christians could have in 1971 said, it doesn't matter what we think of this name. We see that we believe that Native Americans are our brothers and sisters, and they are telling us that this is wounding to them. And so our freedom to use a word is not meant to be um, destructive to our neighbors, to our brothers and sisters. But but the body of Christ didn't rise up and say that. And and so, you know, it, it became, we had to wait for the culture to leave, which is sad. And we had to wait for businesses to leave, which is yeah, one of the things I've been doing in response to this is asking myself, how does this intersect with um, Christian spirituality? Because on the surface, one could simply see this as a story about sports, a story about um, economics. Uh, but, you know, the, the thing that comes to my mind is, is honoring the dignity of people made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And when you reduce um, a whole people group to a mascot, uh, a mascot that has um, uh, a degrading connotation to it. I mean, that's that's a big deal. The other thing, and you just alluded to it, or you just uh, talked about it, was um, uh, you know this is also just about Christian love. If, if mm-hmm. folks are brothers and sisters, then and <laughs> there were protests outside of the games with signs that said um, hashtag not your mascot. Right, so mm-hmm. very clear. I mean, this is not. Mm-hmm. It, it, it wasn't like well, the message is kind of clear, unclear. It was really fuzzy. No, very clear. We are not your mascot. And mm-hmm. Christian love says, you know what? I need to listen to this. This is harmful mm-hmm. to a group of people. Um, mm-hmm. So. Yeah, no, that's that's astonishing. Well, here's here is what is astonishing me. I'm gonna read you a quote um, oh that I, from somebody I was reading this week, and I want to know if you can guess um, who wrote it and and when it was written. Okay, okay? a game. Yes, all right. Game. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right, here we go. Um, so this is someone um, writing about the church's response to racial unrest. Um, The most sensitive whites merely said, we deplore the riots, but sympathize with the reason for the riots. This was tantamount to saying, of course we raped your women, lynched your men, and ghettoized the minds of your children, and you have a right to be upset, but that is no reason for you to burn our buildings. If you people keep acting like that, we will never give you your freedom. I knew that response was not only humiliating and insulting, but wrong. It revealed not only an insensitivity to black pain and suffering, but also, and more importantly for my vocation as a theologian, a theological bankruptcy. So who do you think wrote that? And when do you think it was written? Wow. Um, let's see. I'm, I'm going to just... Um, just take a guess and say it was written by um, Dr. King in 68, no, 65. So this is um, James Cone oh. Press, written in 1975. And 75. I, I mean, like, it's just amazing. And, and like and, the very and, next it, and it could have come out of last week's newspaper. Last week. 
Right. I mean, like, yeah. it seriously could. I mean, the next sentence is the education of white theologians did not prepare them to deal with Watts, Detroit. What, it, what was needed was a new way of looking at theology that must emerge out of the dialectic of black history and culture. And I just think that's so interesting that if you had changed the names of the cities, I mean, this exact same criticism could be made against um, whatever term, whatever adjective you want to use, dominant, mainline, or white theology. And I just find it to be so depressing that, you know, that, that this, um, you know, that God anointed this brilliant prophetic mind in 1975. And, and this is just the same lesson of being able to say, I mean, and he, he just sort of, I mean, I, his whole premise in the beginning of this book is like, I mean, Tillich and Bart are fine, but they, they don't, you know, they don't uh, have anything to say to the lived experience of oppressed people, right? Like their theology written by the dominant culture. And if your theology speaks only to the oppressed, I mean, to the oppressors and not to the oppressed, it's, it's problematic. Right. And, And so, I mean, what I think is so interesting about reading James Cohn's work is that he he clearly um, you know is claiming his theological revelation from the context of his experience as a black man in America, and so he's naming it as like black theology. And I and I so I certainly I certainly um, honor and appreciate that, but I also just think like it's not black theology; it's just real theology, right? Like it's just the reality of um, that God to the extent that a nation becomes the kind of empire that like turns human lives into commodities to be consumed, then God is always going to be on the side of the brick makers, not the straw takers. And so, you know, the fact that, you know, whatever, there's, there's something to be said for people being on the road to Damascus and having their eyes open and hearing this revelation that you're actually persecuting me and then, but then you got to turn around and walk another way, not just continue to Damascus, but try to like be it in a little more, um, you know, humane way or like invite some black theologians to come along with you or, you know, so I, I just found it to be really um, profoundly sad that, I mean, the gospel message never changes. So it's not like, and I was reading and just some of the stuff I've been reading, you know, there's so much written right now in response to Hamilton and people have a lot of criticism of um, Lin-Manuel Miranda because they say he sort of um, ironically whitewashed the some of the history of the founding fathers by smoothing out some of the edges and not really talking about slavery. Um, and, um, and, and some people have come back and just said, you know, well, in it's time, blah, blah, blah. And I, I was reading one article, they were saying, this is something that was written by someone in France, like 1777, where they said, I read this declaration and it rings hollow because the soil is being tilled by, you know, humans who don't, you know, it's not like it takes a rocket scientist genius coming back in time to rewrite history. It's not like the revelation that slavery was antithetical to the realm of God. I mean, that, that, that didn't take a cognitive leap. It was always right there in plain sight and you had to work really hard not to see it. And so, I mean, we never needed a road to Damascus revelation of God, but to the extent that we did need it, you know, God has been 
regularly delivering it in every generation. And just so many of us believers who profit from the world as it is, keep looking for ways to believe that things really aren't as bad as they are and that we can um, sort of make the gospel fit within the context of the American empire. And we can't. And like, to the extent that I went to seminary in, you know, the two thousands and, you know, to the extent that I read James Cole and it was an elective class that I chose to take and not, you know, why am I, why does everybody have to read Bart? And only some of us choose to read Tillich when the original, I mean, only some of us choose to read Cone when the original sin in America, which is the context of which most of us are going to do ministry, is slavery. I mean, unless you want to go back even further and call it Native American genocide, like it, it's just, in, it's insanity to me. So that is yeah, what I was a, just There's a bit of a contradiction in our seminary training because on the one hand, um, you're, I think you're exactly right. On the other hand, we were taught that everyone goes to the text with a certain lens, right? The text does not change. The truth of the text does not change. And yet everyone reads it through a certain lens. And so you've got to be aware of your lens and your social location affects how you read the text, right? And so we're, we're taught that. And at the same time, what you say is absolutely true. What we're given is the dominant version of the meaning of the text. And I think that's why it's so hard for many uh, white Christian pastors and theologians because their experience, their life, matches the dominant interpretation and the empire. Those three things go together and like, it makes no sense for me of them to change. But for uh, someone in a different social location, it's like, no, I, we can clearly see that some manner of interpretation or, um, or understanding of the text is supporting white supremacy. Well, I mean, so listen to this, listen to this sentence, which I mean, so he says, the end of the introduction. Unfortunately, not only white seminary professors, but even some blacks as well have convinced themselves that only the white experience provides the appropriate context for questions and answers concerning things divine. They do not recognize the narrowness of their experience and the particularity of their theological expressions. They like to think of themselves as universal people. Yes. That is why most seminaries emphasize the need for appropriate tools in doing theology, which always means white tools, i.e. knowledge of the language and thought of white people. They fail to recognize that other people have also thought about God and have something significant to say about Jesus's presence in the world. I mean, in that, I just think, I mean, A, there's just the sort of the idea that critical thinkers can become ontologically aware of that fact in a vacuum. But B, when the actual text that you're using any color of tools to exegete contains stories in it like, I don't know, the Exodus or the Deuteronomic Covenant, or I mean, like, it just, it's not just that you have to sort of have this, um, you know, dual consciousness awareness of yourself and of your tools the text itself is screaming at you mm -hmm. about 
where God is in the world and how power works and how God wants power to work, right? And so to not even be able to ask, to say, like, let me prepare to understand this text so that I can use it to form people and form communities, but never even ask the question, well, what about what about my communities? How does the text judge those? I mean, like, it's just an astonishing thing, particularly for a people whose whole MO is we're the critical thinkers who don't, I mean, who are aware of our biases, right? I'm like, it's just this astonishing, like, mind trip, which is why, like, you think that other people in other cultures with other experiences might have thoughts about God that are worthy of sharing. You think people who are actually living the modern day Hebrew in Egypt experience might have something to teach others about the God of the Hebrew Bible. I I mean, like, it's just, you just have to work really hard to protect yourself from the revelation of scripture. Like, you have to work really hard. Mm, you have to work really hard to protect yourself from the revelation of scripture. That's, um, that's, I mean, you that's, have to work pretty hard yeah. to study the life and death of Jesus and protect yourself from the revelation of how systems, economies, and institutions of power um, deny, thwart, and resist the inbreaking of the realm of God. Like, you have to work pretty hard mm. not to see that. Anyway. Well, and it, it seems easy to do when the, um, when the empire is, is um, it's for your benefit. Yeah, well, or, or just when, when what you get is theology in a system that says, actually, this whole thing that God is doing is completely spiritualized. It's only about this intellectual ascent and then actual actions and actual bodies are no longer relevant to God or to the world. And this idea of the kingdom of God being here and now like, oh, that's all a metaphor. Mm. <laughs> don't, don't worry about that. So anyway, um, and you can distract people by saying, just build institutions, build religious institutions. Um, anyway, so that is what has been astonishing me. But I mean, it has been bringing up really interesting questions in my mind of, and this echoes what I think a lot of um, really wise people doing um, work around multi-ethnic communities and racial reconciliation are saying that like so much of what is named as white theology and rightly named as white theology is actually I mean, it's, it's anti-theology, right? Like it's anti-gospel. It's not, it's, it's not true or, or faithful. And, and so, you know, to the extent that James Cone can show up, show, can, can write so many, like just really revelatory pieces about what God has revealed to him through his lived experience as a black man in America I mean, it then begs the question of like, well, who is going to do the work of writing a white theology that's not destructive, right? Like who is going to do the work of saying, this is what I've discovered about who God is that I could not have discovered if I hadn't been born in a white body in this particular dominant theology. Like if, if James Cone is writing a theology, um, very appropriately identifying himself and his people with 
you know, the, those who were enslaved and who's going to write the white theology identifying themselves with say Paul, right. And saying like, or, or, well, more accurately, Saul turning to Paul, right. Like who's going to be able to give people a narrative story where they can own, okay, this is who, this is what I was born into. This is the power I had. This is, these are the actions I took with them. And I, I recognize now sort of the, the destruction and the harm. And this is the way God intervened in my life. And this is the, the new creation that I am now that doesn't deny who I was, but also doesn't crawl around on my belly in shame and guilt forever and has like stepped fully into this new life in Christ and now has a powerful and um, constructive life-giving role to play in the building up of the kingdom. Is that possible? Is it possible for someone to, to write that in a, in a credible I mean, way? I just sort of, wonder if that's not what has to happen in order for there to be a path for full healing. I mean, like, it's, you know, because I think part of the problem and, and Cone identifies this and he's not the only one or the first or certainly not the last, but just so many white people don't think of themselves as white. They think of themselves as individuals, right? And whiteness becomes this default universal, like generic humanity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and so it's really mm -hmm. important for white people to be able to understand that like we do have a culture. Um, it's, it's not only gender reveal parties, like there are destructive things. There are non-appropriated things and destructive things that have just, you know, become part of how, how we function in the world as white people. And, and we need to be able to know that and claim it and then sort of cast vision for a different way of being white in the world and not a way of whiteness that is full of like denial or self-hatred, right? Because you can't invite people into new life if basically what you're inviting them into doing is like a lifetime of just like um, unsuccessful atoning, right? Like mm -hmm. nobody, mm -hmm. that, that's sure. not the gospel. I mean, it's sure. not the gospel to be invited into a kingdom where you're permanently sort of a second-class citizen. Right? I think, um, and I, I could be wrong, but um, I think that can only happen in the context of theologies emerging from Africa, Latin America, Asia, and in light in, in light of those emerging theologies exposing the bankruptcy of, of, of European theology. I don't know if that can happen independent of, of those other theologies from other parts of the world. Um, I, I just don't, oh, I don't, I don't think, see, Yeah, I mean, I don't think independent, right? Because I mean, I think for white people, the first thing that was have to happen is a sort of a critical look and a deconstruction of these norms that we assumed were universal and yet unique to us, right? But and yeah, then, and an understanding of actual history. I, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, exactly. I said it a couple of weeks ago. Part of, I think the 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 bankruptcy, the the where where so many white people miss it is just so disconnected from history. Like just the just the historical truth that the reformers that we love to lift up, Calvin and Luther, that the reformers reached back to African theologians mm -hmm. for much of their stuff, right? Just that alone. 
also, you know, when we were in seminary, we studied the Council of Nicaea and the formation of the Trinity. Well, also, um, Africans, African Christians were wrestling with the nature of Christ. Yeah. And right. they, 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 were, they were wrestling with uh, hum, his uh, humanity and divinity. But they, they articulated it in a different way than Nicaea. Instead of saying um, one, what? One with the Father begotten, not made. Well, two persons, one nature, one nature, two right, persons. Right. However, the, in, in those African languages, that didn't make sense because Latin could articulate. In, in that way, but in African languages, that didn't make sense. And so they articulated Jesus' identity in another way, his nature. And the Latin Christians said, ah, it's, it, this is trash. And we, we need to recover that history because if we don't, there's this, there's this undercurrent in theology and in seminary training that says, well, if it's, if it's white, it's right, right? Well, and you know, I mean, it was so helpful just looking at this just this week that I mean, I never, I, for a while, I played around with the idea of doing, getting a PhD. And one of the things that honestly, I was like, I'm not doing this is because this requirement to learn German and become fluent in German. And I was always just like, I'm not doing that. Like, I don't understand it. Why do I have to do it? Like, tell me I have to learn Hebrew and Greek. Like, okay, even Latin, like, okay, maybe, mm -hmm, but why mm -hmm. German? And then I'm like, okay, I'm so grateful that I didn't fall for that because requiring people to learn German is just a, a, an institutionalized way of saying the white theologians are the only ones that have truth and they need to be centered in all debate. And if you force every PhD candidate to learn German, then that's a really effective way to make sure that the dudes, and they are all dudes, who write in German <laughs> stay at the very center of the thought universe of what it means to be Christian, right? And so whatever, it doesn't matter. Well, I, we'll and the amazing, enough, the amazing thing that is happening by the power of the spirit is that beyond all of our working and striving, the, the center of Christianity is, has moved in the world. It is no longer in the West. Center of Christianity is, is in the Southern hemisphere, right? right? And I, yeah. And so um, I don't think it will be long <laughs> before we see um, scholars, uh, books emerging from these new centers uh, that will overshadow what we've known. For well, centers. and to be fair, like it's not that I'm arguing that God was not present and offering revelation through the German theologians, like through the, like, that's not my argument. It's no, this here's what preset I said that we have, that these are the most important texts. And these are the texts from which we need to reason all of our truth and the texts to which we need to compare all other texts. That is the problem. Well, and I also hear you saying, and I think rightly so, is that the way the system is set up, it, it, continues to support a philosophy of white supremacy, even in the centers of theological learning. Right. And I just want to say for people who, who might trip over that, when we say a theology of white supremacy, by that we don't mean 
that if you read the original German, they're saying white people are better than black people. I mean, you'd probably have to go back centuries for that, right? It's just that by requiring texts by white people to be read in their original language and not requiring texts by people of color or poor people or people in the so-called developing world to be read at all, much less in their original language, then you're saying these texts matter and those texts are like a nice, if you want to add some ethnic embroidery to your theological shirt, you can choose to do that, but they're not normative. And I am just saying, if you take the text, the Bible, most seriously, then it would seem to be a foregone conclusion that the place you would look for revelation from God would, again, not be in the colonizers, but would be among those who were colonized because that is the lived experience, both of the chosen people and of, you know, what's his name again? I don't know. On the tip of my tongue. Oh yeah. Jesus. (laughs) Let me give you one simple, practical, real world illustration of what you just said out of my own experience, because I think you're exactly right. So I'm in seminary. I'm studying Bart. I'm studying Tillich. I'm doing all the things that I'm being told to do. And then I take a preaching class. First day of preaching class, what do you do? You get the syllabus. What do you do with the syllabus? You look at all of the books you're going to be reading um, for that class. I go through the syllabus and there's not one Black author, right? So I raise my hand and I said, like, if we know anything about anything, we know how to preach. Come on, mm-hmm. I, I cannot take a preaching class and not have one book by a, a, a Black writer, author, scholar, what? And so, and that that's an example of how an institution says, well, if <laughs> white is right. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, I, I mean, I still, I've told you many times that like one of the most formative influences in my life was my preaching professor, Anthony Candle, Campbell, who died I mean, while I was still living in Boston like 20 years ago, but he was just a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant preacher. Um, And he taught, he was the required, he was the only like intro preaching class. So the only preaching class a lot of people took and was a black Baptist preacher. And just, I just cannot, I mean, I'm sure that there are better preachers in the world, but he was definitely the best preacher I've ever personally Mm. heard, right? And, um, And he taught preaching like a ma- like a master class. So I had just come from a conservatory. So I really understood the model of like the way that you learn art is you don't I mean you don't sit in a class and read a book and write an essay. You get great artists to come in and they make art in front of you and then you make art in front of them and they critique you. And that is how the conservatory model works, right? So like I walk into this class and like I mean, there was no syllabus, right? Like what we had was he would bring in different preachers. I mean, we heard, I mean, just amazing people like, um, I mean, we, we, um, what's his face from Harvard was Harvey Cox was right across the river. And we heard, um, oh, um, everyone is not on the top of my head. The proctors came in and preached for us. I mean, like he was just like, we just had these amazing people come in because that those were his peers like that. And they came in every Thursday and preached in the chapel. And then they came back to our class and they, and we interacted with them and then we would preach and they, or he would critique us. Right. So it was just amazing. And I'm like, I get this. And my 
colleagues, most of them, my classmates just like lost their mind because they're like, where is the syllabus? Where are the books? What is the outline? Like, how do I do this? And I was like, it's so interesting because it was not this, I mean, honestly, looking back now, it like was not this white dialectic of how learning happens. Um, it, we're not given a model and told this is the way you must preach, right? We just brought in amazing, brilliant preachers. And then Vashti McKenzie came in and preached wow. for us. Okay. Like we just yeah. had amazing, amazing people. And like, I mean, I would say probably, I mean, definitely the majority of my classmates were white. And so like the majority of my classmates were just like spent the whole year just bitching about the shitty preaching class we had. And I was like, oh my gosh. And again, like I didn't have the language for any of this, but I'm like, I don't understand why you don't understand. Like this dude is not sitting on the corner selling newspapers. Like we all agree he's the best preacher we've ever heard. Like why? Anyway, whatever. It was just this mm. whole thing about like how colonized the whole institution is and how, I mean, all of our institutions are learning and how power is like, you know, controlled and then it validates certain voices and like marginalizes other voices. And then we wonder why we just can't get past a certain point of growth because we yeah. only listen to certain voices. Yeah. You and I had a conversation the other day about, um, being pastors of multi-ethnic congregations and um, possibly presenting something mm -hmm. in the fall. Um, and, and one of the things that's been on my mind um, over these past few months is examining how my mind um, continues to be colonized, especially as I try to pastor people of um, a different ethnicity than me and how I'm just wrestling with that, wrestling with um, needing to speak truth, needing to speak justice, the same time maintaining relationships and also wrestling with how my own mind, my own theology has been colonized. And um, I struggle sometimes with uh, d discovering a place where I've been colonized, right? And wanting to rid myself of that. And I can, I can, I can seem to kind of flip on people, right? It's like, we thought Yolanda was a nice guy and all of a sudden he's just kind of, um, he seems kind of angry about something. And I, I, I see that in myself a lot, um, in these past few months. And I was really wrestling with how to deconstruct and decolonize uh, my own theology. And at the same time, um, care for the people that I'm called to pastor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I think maybe it'd be helpful for people who are listening, like we're using the words colonize and decolonize a lot. And um, they're pretty... They're, they are becoming in certain conversations in certain circles kind of, I mean, I think they're helpful terms, but they also can kind of become jargony and like a buzzword. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's helpful mm -hmm. not to assume a, that people know what we mean by that, but to sort of break it down a little bit. So like if I had to define what we mean when we use those terms, I mean, it's just many of us just grew up in a, in, in school learning about say the enlightenment and learning, literally learning that like, um, Greco-Roman culture was kind of the pinnacle of, you know, pure, classic, rational 
thought and like the pure forms of democracy and science and literature and art and, you know, aesthetics, that all of those things sort of um, appeared at that moment in human history, maybe even peaked at that moment in human history. And that before then it was all kind of like a dark, savage morass and, and that basically civilized people um, know those traditions and are formed in those traditions. And that's just sort of like the ground um, of, of common thought um, that everybody who is quote civilized holds in common and, and it, and it becomes kind of a, um, a shibboleth to tell like, are you an educated person? Then you will know sort of these Roman myths and you will know these, um, you know, classical Latin phrases. And it's just kind of a, um, it becomes, it functions as a kind of, um, way to determine, um, you know, who, who, who matters and who doesn't. And so, um, and so obviously there's like, historically, there was the practice of certain countries going into other geographical spaces and, and not noticing, recognizing, or valuing the communities that were already there, the indigenous communities. And then those um, countries would come in and, quote, colonize those um, spaces that they thought were um, unsettled and empty and that when they colonized those spaces, they would understand it as we're bringing this enlightenment, these universal truths, this these ways of of being fully human, and, and so um, and by force, and by force, always you know always by force, and justifying that force by saying, you know, using coded language like savages or or uncivilized or barbaric, what you know whatever mm-hmm. that that language was, and so I mean the point when you talk about you know, decolonizing or noticing places you've been colonized. It's not to say that all of those ideals, all that art, all that literature, all that, you know, scientific method, all of that, um, those institutions that developed, it's not to say that they were garbage or they were all wrong or they were worthless. That's not it. But it is to say that assumption that this is sort of the set point of humanity and that anyone who um, is truly human has familiarity with these thoughts or has been influenced by somebody with familiarity with this kind of culture, um, that assumption is very poisonous. So we, we believe that, you know, lots of, you know, all truth is God's truth. And there is, I think, valuable truth in many of those traditions and, 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 um, and uh, in that art and in, in those discoveries, but they've been weaponized in really harmful ways. And just to say, not all truth is found in that culture or in that in those um, communities or the you know so I, I think that's what we mean by when we talk about decolonizing is just saying you know those minds those lives are not the only lives that matter it's not saying they don't matter it's just saying we don't look for the fullness of objective truth um, and ideals in in those cultures and we don't judge other cultures or other um, expressions of truth by their relative distance or nearness to those. And it, it's just a particularly interesting thing when you kind of become aware of Christians having that kind of colonization to say, how, how did Christians who were, whose primary text is the Bible, so, you know, the experiences of Semitic Hebrew people and the experiences of a Palestinian Jew you know, that, that, how did that, those cultures not come primarily for us, but somehow we only know those cultures through the lens of 
these Greco-Roman cultures, I mean, to the extent that for centuries, the only Bible that people read was the Vulgate, which is a Latin translation of the mm-hmm. Hebrew Bible. And, and we still to this day study the Vulgate, which Vulgate, Vulgate, I don't know. But the reality is like, why are we more interested in a Latin translation of the primary text than just looking at the primary text? And if we want to look at a Latin translation of it, that's fine. But let's not look for the truth in that as much as an expression of how people at that day and age understood the primary revelation of God. So, so that was me talking a lot to explain. No, what that I was good. That, that, that was helpful. That's, that was really good. Yeah. Um, so we've been talking for a long time. Are you thinking about anything else this week? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> actually I am. And real quickly, I, I'm, I pulled a, a book off the shelf um, earlier this week and I, I pulled it off the shelf because I was thinking about um, a, a devotional for our elders. Uh, we were getting ready to have a meeting and uh, the book is entitled An Unhurried Life. Um, and um, Who's that by? I think I have it. I do have it. You have that? Yeah. Um, did, did you read the story about, uh, I love that the, uh, the author begins with, um, he says, I'm addicted to speed and quickly says, oh, not the drug, <laughs> just, just hurrying in life. And, yeah. um, you know, it's, since uh, the beginning of this pandemic, I've had people say to me quite a bit, God's trying to tell us something. God's trying to tell us something. And um, I said, well, if God is trying to tell us something, well, we should be listening. And, and for me, um, one of the things that God's been saying to me in, in during this pandemic is that my, 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 my life pace, um, is, is not faithful that I'm, I, I always seem to be in a hurry. And, uh, the, the book tells a story about, um, uh, a, a tribe in the Amazon and there were a group of people from outside of their tribe trying to get to know them. And um, this tribe has this practice of walking through the forest. They, they just take these long walks in the forest and then periodically they'll just like without warning, just stop and sit. And then they'll get up and walk some more and then just suddenly stop and sit. And someone asked them, why, why do you do this? And they said, and I, I love this line, they said, we need, we need to stop and rest so that our souls can catch up with us. Yeah. And um, uh, I've been thinking about uh, the, the scripture from the Psalms, be still and know that I am God. And I can't think of the scholar's name. There's an Old Testament scholar. I think it's Peter Craigie or someone who translates that verse, uh, sit down and remember who's in charge. Um, and so th- I, that's what I'm thinking about in this season or, or, or this week, just the opportunity that this season gives me to take on a different pace and to, uh, you know, when this is all over, to take that into the next season of my life. You know, it's so interesting. That reminds me of, um, like, I really like that, um, insight from Jewish practice that Abraham Heschel pointed out to me is that, you know, the Sabbath begins not in the morning, but in the evening. And he said sort of the, the formative thing about that is you, you keep, 
you start keeping the Sabbath and then the really the first thing you do is you, you eat and then you go to bed. And so for the first, you know, whatever, 12 hours of the 24 hours, you were, you, you know, you're unconscious or just receiving. And he said like, the, the point of that is you just, it reminds oh, you good. that like God is, is God all, all by himself, as they say, while, while we are asleep. And the, and the first thing you really discover on the Sabbath is that, you know, you wake up in the morning and the world is still there. And so just that, that how formative that is for a people of faith to say in the most sacred day of the week, the first thing that God tells us to do in the context of a day of rest is to go to sleep and, and mm. just how that changes the way that you understand your place and work in the world is, you know, you understand that the world functions by God's grace and through God's power and God's strength. And, and we have work that we're called to, I mean, yes, but it's not, it's not all dependent on us and we don't move through the world with the same level of, um, just false sense of self and anxiety that, and, you know, I just, I really, really like that. Not that I'm terribly great at practicing it, but that is one of the things, I mean, I'll just say, I was going to talk about something else, but I'll talk about it next week. Cause one of the things I'm thinking about this week is I read a, um, an article and I, I can't even remember the name of the person who wrote it. It started with a V. So there you go. But he, he was writing to pastors and he was saying, okay, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And so you need to change the way you're doing ministry in this season. And, um, you know, that you run a marathon very differently than you run a sprint and you, you know, with this, when you, you sprint, you just run at a certain pace with an expectation of how long the race will be. And if you're running a marathon, you just have to adopt a very different pace because you understand that the race is much longer and you have to refuel along the way and do all this stuff. And I, I mean, and I really struggle as an, as an individual, as a follower of Jesus and as a pastor with figuring out like what is the right pace in this particular season of ministry. And you just get such contradictory terms like, you know, you have some people saying like, it's right in this season to, to rest and to model trust in God and to just accept that you can't, you can't do all the things that you did before and, and to figure out a digital adaption of everything you do is, is not, it's frantic, not faithful. And then you have other voices saying like, no, this lethargy, this COVID lethargy that you are experiencing is, you know, the, the fight, flight or fright response, right? So you're just paralyzed by the change of reality and you need to face it and see, you know, and I just, it's really difficult to know what, what is faithful during this season. And, and when is it right to just say, okay, there's a different pace and I, and I not only can I, but I must accept that. And that's what faithfulness looks like, or no, this is really extraordinary heightened time and you need to work even harder to discern new ways, uh, you know, it's, it's just very hard. Like, and the hard thing about being a pastor is like, whatever path you set up to walk on, on that day, there are at least half of the voices in the room are like, you're doing it wrong. 
Like, yes. Like yes. Either, either you're driving everybody crazy because you're working too hard and putting too much anxiety into the system, or you're letting everybody down because you're frozen and lethargy. And you, you know, it's just really, um, it's, it's, it is quite difficult to discern what faithfulness looks like in this season. So marathon, not a sprint. What does that look like? Um, but I think. But the analogy alone is helpful. Marathon, yeah. not a sprint. Well, and I just, I also think it's just helpful to think about which, which posture is more in line with kind of the deep ancient revelation of scripture. And, and one of the things that I keep coming up to just because of where I've been preaching lately and because I'm doing some small group work with people in Ephesians is just, you know, so I've got Paul sitting in a prison cell, Paul, who's like the most active little energizer, bunny, busy bee, whoever existed. And then all of a sudden he just gets parked in a cell and all he can do is write these stupid letters that were just so ephemeral, right? And so um, vulnerable. And, and I just have to imagine that, that as much as he meant everything he said, he also, I would imagine, was probably crawling out of his skin when he and was yet, alone in cell. <laughs> and yet, none of the churches he planted exist today. But those right. letters. But those letters do. And so, yeah, yeah I, I think about that a lot. It's like, what does it mean in this time to just accept that the things that are so essential in other seasons are just not possible? And like Andy Stanley just announced um, at his churches in Atlanta that they're not going back to in-person worship for the rest of this year, which because, and one of the things he said is, A, we can't guarantee people's safety, and B, we cannot give, create the kind of quality worship experience given the realities of COVID that we want to. So like, we don't want to come back because what we could do is just not what we want to be able to do in real time. And so what does it mean to just accept the reality of those limits and then allow the spirit to lead you to discover other ways of being faithful that you never would have sought or chosen or or been able to perceive if, if things were normal and and to do that kind of deep shift work i mean just takes time it takes time um just time to think to well i mean i think the whole i, I think we all probably need to sit down and let our souls catch up with our bodies given mm -hmm. just how how dramatic life has been um, in the past four months. So anyway. Yeah, like I spent much of yesterday putting together um, a Spider-Man Lego set with my six-year-old. And it's like, you know yeah. what? This was good for my soul. Yeah, yeah. Well, what are you preaching on this week? Um, <laughs> interestingly, uh, Job. Um, hmm. Uh, a sermon is entitled um, Troubled Times and the Character of God. And I'm looking at um, chapter 38 and a little bit of chapter 40. Uh, okay. This is the place where Job, um, he's saying, well, if I had a face-to-face -face God, a face-to-face -face time yeah. with God, I'd tell God, you know, to his face what I really thought about what was going on. And Job, he has a lot to say about what he's yep. going through, right? Yeah. 
Yep. And God showed up. And I am in the midst of this COVID crisis, seeing the text in a different way. So a year ago, if I had uh, looked at this text, I would have said, this is God just putting Job in his place when God shows up and says, where were you when I created the yeah. planets and stars? Where were you? Can you can you make it rain when you want to, Job? And uh, I, I would have seen it as God just blasting Job. And indeed, God does... Um, and he does, in a sense, put him in his place. But in this season, I'm seeing so much grace uh, in, in, in that text. Because when God shows up, God says, basically, Joe, <laughs> I'm, since you, you can't put the stars in, in place, I can. I did. And if I can do that, then I can take care of you. Yeah, I think that's really helpful to say like I think always in that response of God what is revealed is the scale of Job's humanity against God's divinity and I think it's easy to assume that because God is essentially revealing to Job that he is small and God is large that that's like a putting in your place or a put down mm -hmm. but in a season like this to be reminded of the grandeur of God in the context of the smallness of humanity actually gives hope right exactly like hope um and that's where that's, i'm going yeah i mean that's the whole of reading through ephesians so slowly um is so helpful because i mean peterson keeps pointing out that like paul keeps like rubbing people's noses and just how vast god is like just like that it starts with god it's mediated by god it ends with god that we know who we are in the context of God. And instead of beginning all of our theological conversations from the, from the starting point of I or me, like Paul won't let that happen. And, and even when he's praying for them in, the, in, in chapter three, I mean, his prayer is not, here's what you need. Here's what they need. You know, they, you know, he, there's nothing wrong with those prayers, but the prayers that he offers on behalf of the people are, you know, that they would be filled to all fullness with the abundance of God, that they would n have knowledge um, of the love that surpasses all knowledge, that they would be able to grasp like the height and the depth and the width and the length of God's love for them. And, and those are all saying like, what I'm praying for you is like the grandeur of God over your life, not to like put you in your place in a negative way, but to put you in your place in a way that lifts the burden of responsibility and and really understanding that's crushing you right because mm. from our limited vantage point what we understand crushes us so yeah i think that's really i mean that's a really helpful thing to think about reading job in this time um well i've already recorded my sermon for this week because that is what we're stuck doing and i would just say i mean I think that I wrote a good sermon, but I realized after I recorded it that it was really, I was like, oh, I did not preach a good sermon. And my reality is that normally I think I preach better than I write <laughs> because I'm good. Like I'm good on my feet. Like that's just a gift that I have. And now that my preaching is to my own face and stupid iPhone, like I, I finished the sermon. I was like, oh my gosh, my voice hurts because 
it's just like all at one level. Like I feel like mm. I can't, like I can't pause. Yeah, I can't yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's, I can't like get quiet or then get let, like, I can't, like, I can't do any of the things that I normally do without even thinking. Cause I'm just kind of watching people absorb the words and like mm. letting some things hang and letting or and pick, you know, just everything tone and pace. I don't know how to vary it when I'm looking at my own face. And I just realized as I finished, like, I have to learn a totally, like I am a beginner preacher and that. Wow. That's just deep. That that's real. No, that's, that's, yes. This season has put us in a different place. place and yes. And yeah. Um, yeah, I started using the, the side of the camera where I can't see myself. And for me, yeah. that was really helpful. Well, I finally and just broke down and ordered a stupid tripod. And so I'm hoping that will I help. was going to ask because I know you're holding your phone now. And, you know, yes. you've, you've dropped it a couple of times during this <laughs> podcast. So if you guys hear any bumps in yeah, the podcast, Sorry. Kate didn't fall. She didn't hurt herself. She just dropped the phone. And so I'm I know you're holding me. the camera now. So you hold your camera and preach your sermon. No, I mean, I don't hold it, but I, I prop it up on like boxes and books. And so like, yes, I mean, the difference between preaching for real and doing what I'm doing now is like the gift of being in the room with people in the context of worshiping is that like when you stand up in the pulpit, like you can just really totally lose consciousness of yourself. Like you're just not thinking about yourself at all. Like you're only like to the extent that you're thinking about anything at all, it's just the ideas and the word, like that's nah. it. Right. Mm -mm. And, and I just can't do that yet. Like, like part of my mind is like distracted by my hair and part of my mind is thinking like, Oh, what if that thing slips? And part of my mind is like, Oh, that kid is going to come <laughs> and interrupt me, but that's real. That still happens. But listen, <laughs> listen, here's like, the great just, thing. The, the great thing about that is that you can press stop and record it again. No, you I'm can, sorry. You can press stop and record it again, but I get, I swear, like about two minutes in and I'm like, oh no, like this is it. Like oh, this one, one is week I recorded the sermon three times. Uh -huh. I am one take Murphy. Like the reality is I'm not, I mean, like it would have to be bad. Otherwise, I mean, like if I dropped it when I was recording the sermon, I would just pick up the phone and be like, sorry, folks, this is real. I just dropped the phone. So I just, um, anyway, I just am thinking like, it's just a crazy, crazy thing to be 20 years into my ministry, to be 44 years old and realizing like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a beginner again. And I mean, I think there's just, it's not like that's without precedent in, in the biblical story. And I, I do have real hope that on the other side of this, you know, that we wouldn't choose the season for ourselves, but it will grow us and deepen us and, and teach us things that we couldn't discover in any other season. So I'm, I am mildly hopeful that I'm, no, I'm really hopeful that I will be a better preacher on the other side of this. And more importantly, a better disciple. Mm. Um, but you just, I mean, as we discovered during the transformation, like you don't get to skip the learning part, right? Like you don't get to show up on your first day as an expert. So this was yeah. the third sermon that I've done in this context. And it's just a totally different thing. And, um, 
So I'm just trying to, I mean, I think about like the marathon. I mean, I think that was one place that the marathon analogy was helpful for me this week is just to be like, okay, like this isn't a, a five week pleasure cruise. Like this may very well be reality for the next significant chunk of time. And so I'm just going to get better at it. But, um, you know, anyway, so that, but it was just so annoying because I was like, oh, I think this is a good sermon. And I recorded and I was like, well, <laughs> maybe I'll just release the manuscript because. Anyway. Okay. So I know we're, we're going long, but I've got to ask you this question. So do you watch yourself? Like after it's recorded, do you watch it? No. Well, I watch it in real time when the congregation watches it, which is also just so weird because I want to worship with my church. And so the way to worship with my church now is online. But obviously I have never had the experience of like trying to worship like while I am on, you know, so it's just such a weird, surreal, strange thing. And I hate it. after, After six weeks or so in, I remember one Sunday, we're sitting on the sofa in the living room, we're watching the worship video, and I'm listening to the sermon, and it was so strange. It was like I was hearing it for the first time. I know this is going to sound a little cheesy, but I was like, (laughs) I said that? (laughs) I was like, what? It was like the spirit helped me hear what I had recorded. And it was, it was an amazing experience. Um, but it, it is a little, a little weird at times. I mean, it just, I mean, it's okay. I mean, like I accept that this is whatever, like, why shouldn't this happen? Disruptions are just part of growth and change and it's all, but I mean, just, I'm just trying to, um, you know, be, mature about leveraging it for the sake of people I love. And when I say I hate it, I don't mean, I don't hate worshiping with my church at all. Like I, 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 that's why I do it is because everyone is on at the same time and people are commenting and that's just, I mean, right now that's what being together in community looks like. So you, you couldn't keep me away from it, but it just is really uncomfortable to be so self-conscious in that moment, because normally that's the, uh, that's the time of my life when I'm least self-conscious because I'm just focused on a reality. That's just so much deeper and more beautiful than, than my self preoccupation that I walk around with every other moment in my life. Mm. So it's just a, it's just a weird, it's a weird, weird time. And um, that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) So we should stop because this is maybe the longest podcast we've ever recorded. And so we, if you are still listening, you're our favorites. We're very glad um, that that you are. And I always think that you should go to YouTube and you should check out the Derrida Presbyterian um, channel and you should listen to Yolanda's messages and worship with the folks at Derrida and you should Google Derrida Presbyterian Church and it will pop you over to their website or you can just hear... Um, Yolanda's messages on the Podbean website. Look for Derrida Church. And if you want to find out more about The Grove, you go to thegrovecharlotte.org and you can find Grove messages on iTunes 
and uh, you can listen to the, you can worship with us on Sunday mornings on Facebook, on the live stream at 10 a.m. And um, we've got lots of our church folks leading different parts of worship. So that is just really, really, really beautiful. It's a beautiful church. So thanks for listening and we will talk to you next week.